Well, good morning. My name is Lee, and I'm one of the pastors here. We are excited that you braved the weather to join us today. The song, the last song that we sang uh, was kind of a newer version of a song called It Is Well With My Soul. And so I wanted to kind of, to start today, take us back to the original version of that that was written in 1871. If you've grown up in church, you've heard that in the hymn version before. Uh, the words are amazing. In the first verse, goes like this, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And so when we hear that, right, when peace like a river, when things are good, when things are rough, it is well with my soul. That's great. Yeah, let's do that. But when you find out the story behind why he wrote that, it becomes even more meaningful. There was a man named Horatio Spafford. He was a Christian and a, a lawyer in Chicago in the late 1800s. In 1871, his two-year-old son dies from natural causes at a young age. Later that year, the Great Chicago Fire happens. He loses the majority of his business. A lot of the real estate holdings that he had literally went up in flames, and he is almost broke. He begins to build up his business again, and two years later, in 1873, things are going well for him. And so he and his wife, and he now has four daughters, they're all going to go to Europe to kind of like celebrate how things have been going. And so a couple of hours before they're supposed to leave, he gets a call from one of his business partners, and they have to meet with somebody about some zoning issues that have come up. So he sends his wife and his four daughters on the trip. He gets a telegram later saying that there was a crash, all four of his daughters died, and only his wife survived. He immediately gets on a ship and begins to go to meet up with her. And as he passes the spot, because at this point there is still wreckage in the water from where his daughters died, as he passes that spot, he writes the words to, it is well with my soul. When peace comes, when sorrows come, it is well with my soul. I mean, I cannot even imagine what that must have been like for him. Lost five children, lost almost all of his money, everything that he owned, everything that he had was gone. And he's able to write the words, it is well with my soul. So my question for us today is, is it, is it possible for us to get to that point? For no matter what happens in life, no matter what comes our way, that we can look to God and say, it is well with my soul. Because as I was reading this story, the way he responded does not make sense. It's not as though he wrote the song five years later. He wrote it when the wreckage was still in the water. I mean, I can't imagine the kind of faith that that takes to be able to do that, the kind of trust you have to have in God for that to be the case. Now, a lot of times as, as pastors, we like to start off the sermon with like a fun little anecdote that we can kind of use to connect to what the sermon's gonna be about that day. But our text today is about suffering, it's about trials, and I know there's a lot of us that are in the midst of that right now, and I don't wanna make light of that. But I do want us to see if there's a way for us to get to that point where no matter what comes our way, we can say, it is well with my soul. 
We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're continuing this Life in Exile series where the believers that Peter is writing to have been exiled. They've been kicked out of their homes. They've been sent out of the area because they're believers. And so with this comes suffering. It comes pain. There are trials as part of this. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one, there's a blue one that looks like this on the seat in front of you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, grab that. If you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that with you. Uh, Thanks to the generosity of the people here at our church, we're able to give you those if you want to take one home, if you need one. If you are using this, we are on page 830. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now, one of the things I want to set up for us before we go any further, there are times when we're reading through scripture and things are not directly related to us. The people that Peter is writing to were persecuted Christians. They were rejected by society. They were not allowed to live in their areas that they wanted to. They were not allowed to work how they wanted to. So Peter would not write this letter to First Baptist Church Benicia in 2019. We are not persecuted. We sometimes, sometimes I hear Christians in America throw that word out. Uh, I guarantee there's a lot of other missionaries in third world countries and in places where Christianity is illegal. And if you want to know about persecution, I'm sure they'd be happy to have that conversation with you. The worst that we get is that people are rude to us. I mean, that's really, like every now and again, you may lose a job for that, but society as a whole does not reject Christians. We are still allowed to live where we want to live. We're still allowed to work. We're still allowed to vote. So it's not the same. So we have to think about, okay, if I'm reading this and the Bible says that all scripture is useful, how is this useful for me? What we want to do during that time is we want to look for what are the underlying principles that the scripture is telling us. And so there are four underlying principles that I want to talk about today in this idea of suffering. And so first I want to clarify what it means by suffering in this context. It's talking about suffering from things that are beyond our control, okay? It's not you made a terrible choice and there are just natural consequences for that. Those things happen all the time, but these are things that are out of their control. They didn't choose to be exiled. They didn't choose to get kicked out of their homes. They didn't choose to be rejected and be considered outcasts. So when talking about these principles, let's start principle number one, trials are guaranteed, Trials, suffering, pain is guaranteed to everyone on this earth. People who are believers in Christ go through that. People who aren't believers in Christ are going to go through that as well, right? We kind of want to have this idea, well, if I do become a Christian or I don't become a Christian, that'll kind of change things. No. Trials are going to come 
no matter what. So we have to think about why, why did Peter want to let this, these people know, says, hey, do not be surprised. Like this is, basically he's saying, hey, you wanted to follow Jesus? This is what you signed up for. This is part of it. This is part of the process. And he wants to let them know, first of all, that their suffering does not mean that God has left them. In the Old Testament, the way that God worked with his people was those who were righteous. God's hand was upon them. His favor was upon them. And when people sinned or decided to rebel against God, God took his hand or his favor off of them. And so the concern for these believers would have been, if we're going through hard times, does that mean that God has left us? Does that mean that God doesn't love us? And Peter's clearly saying, no, that doesn't have anything to do with it. God is in the midst of this with you. The suffering doesn't mean that God has left. And so for us today, one of the ways we look at this, when trials come, our first thing we say is, why me? Why me? Everybody says that. At some point or another, you said, why is this happening to me? First of all, what that says about ourselves inwardly is that we have a sense of entitlement. I don't think I should suffer, God. All these other people, they're kind of clowns, but I'm smart. I know what's best. I shouldn't have to deal with these things. That's the only way we would say, why me? It's as though we have, we have done enough in our lives to earn the right not to suffer. And anybody that's lived more than five years will tell you that that doesn't, <laughs> it, it doesn't work that way. So we have this idea, why me? Sometimes I've heard it it's said that once you accept Christ, things become easier. If anybody tells you that, if anybody ever tells you that following Jesus will make things easy and smooth, you can be assured of two things. The first one is that they have never read a Bible in their life. And the second thing is that you should never ask them for spiritual direction in any way, shape, or form. Those are the two things. Because there's, the Bible is full of, listen, man, following Jesus costs you something. It costs you something. There are trials. Pain is going to come your way. That's part of it. And in Hebrews chapter 5, if you want to go back and look at this later, write it down. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, talking about Jesus. It says, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Now think about that. Jesus, who was perfect, who was God come down in human form, learned obedience through suffering. Do we really think that we're going to be free of that? That that's not applied to us for some reason? We're not any different in that. But that's our first principle is that trials are guaranteed. Our second one that Peter's getting to is that we need to find joy in our trials. That's an easy one, right? Everybody knows how to do that? We're good? The first thing you need to understand is that joy and happiness are not the same thing. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Getting to eat lunch today is going to make me happy, but I'm not going to find deep joy in that unless it's a really good meal. But there's a difference in that. He is not saying for us to be happy because we're suffering, because things are going wrong. That is ridiculous. In the Bible, suffering is always described as unpleasant. Even though God can make great things from that, it is never seen as something that we want to be a part of. But what he tells us we can connect to that at the end of verse 13. Let's read verse 13. It says, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. This idea of suffering unites us to Jesus because of the suffering that he went through. So it's not as though we don't have anyone to see who's gone through things before we have. Jesus suffered. 
And the great part about that, not about the suffering, but about this connection in verse 13, he ends it up by saying that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed, meaning if we're part of his suffering, we are also part of the glory that is going to be revealed. And when it says the sufferings of Christ, we need to think about that because sometimes we have this idea, oh, I'm suffering just like Jesus did. You will never be killed for the sins of humanity to take that on. So this is not saying that we are suffering just as Christ did. There is this general idea of suffering that we are involved of, but to say that we're suffering for the sins of mankind, only Jesus can do that. So what it is talking about is suffering because you are associated with Christ. Because you're associated with Christ. Now again, this is another thing that looks different for us than it did at this time. We are not rejected by society, but we are rejected by individuals. We're rejected by family members sometimes, rejected by coworkers, right? There are people that you know before you became a Christian that now don't want to have anything to do with you because you become a Christian, right? So there, that is kind of the same in the sense that there is rejection. It's just on a different scale from what they were used to. But Peter's telling them the way to do that, the way to find joy, even when people reject us, is to look to Jesus. Because it's a reminder that suffering is temporary, but living in the glory of Christ is eternal. It's the one thing that can provide us hope through times of pain and suffering because we get so caught up in the trials that are happening, and when we focus on that, we're not looking at Jesus. We can't focus on Christ and on the trials. So the only way for us to be able to get through that is to focus on Christ. That's the only way we can rejoice knowing that there will come a day when our trials will be done, when our pain and our suffering will be done, and we will get to be in the glory of God for eternity. You've got to have something like that to look to. One thing I do want to make clear, that when it says rejoice, it does not mean rejoice in the suffering itself. Peter's not urging them to go look for suffering to go try and find where it's at. It remains unpleasant and it is never described as anything else. Even for Jesus, Jesus suffered it. It was unpleasant for him. It was painful for him. So we can rejoice in this because of what Christ has gone through and what he's done. In verse 14, Peter says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The Greek for the word insulted does not mean when somebody says something rude to you. The Greek for the word insulted means when society rejects you as a whole because you are Christians. Again, that's not fully the case for us. Now, if you take this text and, and we go to somewhere in the Middle East where Christianity is illegal, man, this makes perfect sense to them because they're living this every single day. We're not living this every single day. So what can we take from this? We talked about there are people in our lives who reject us. If, we are, if our faith is in such a way we are, where we are living it out and talking about it, right? If we claim to be Christians but we don't live that way and don't talk about it, we're probably not going to get rejected, right? That's one of the ways that we can see that happening. But it says you are blessed. What does that mean? You are blessed. The last part of verse 14, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The spirit of the glory of God rests on you. This is our evidence that we belong to God. What it's saying is that if the spirit of God is resting on you in these trials, in these moments, God is in your midst. 
Going through trials doesn't mean that God is far away and he's just standing up there going, well, let's see what happens. God is in the midst of it with us. My favorite verse during times like this, Psalm 34, 18. It's another good one to write down if you're going through a rough time and things are hard. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. In those times of trials, in those times of pain, God is with us. God is in the midst of that with us. We sometimes don't feel that, right? That's why it's hard to trust our feelings. But to know that, to know that God is with us in those moments will make all the difference for us. Now, quick side note for verse 15. Peter wants to make sure everyone understands what he means by suffering. We talked earlier about the suffering you can't control. But in verse 15, it says, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. All right, so Peter starts with major crimes, right? Which that's obvious to everybody. It does not mean that the people he's writing this letter to were murdering and stealing things. He's just trying to set this, this standard, right? Okay, we're looking at this first. We're looking at murder. We're looking at thievery. Any other criminal activity, don't do that. But then he also says, even as a meddler. Now, we don't often use the word meddler when we are talking nowadays, the word kind of what it's talking about here is, is annoying, right? Like going into someone else's business and say, no, 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 you're wrong, I'm right, and I sure would love for you to let me tell you about that. That's kind of the attitude. So Peter's saying, not only do you not need to be killing and stealing, but quit annoying people, right? Like, I, I mean, I, I, I love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but man, we can be annoying at times. One of the things that I think can be most frustrating is when I talk to people in my years as a pastor who have said, you know, I go to work and I'm an outcast at work because I'm a Christian. People don't talk to me because I'm a Christian. And in getting to have conversations with people and getting to see how work situations are, sometimes that can be true. More times than not, it's because you're a jerk. I mean, that's, that's reality, right? Like we get... Whenever we talk about our faith, we get kind of this arrogance and this entitlement as though we're the smartest people in the world and we figured something else that nobody else did. The thing you need to understand, if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you're a believer, it is strictly because of the grace of God, not because of you. You are not clever enough. I am not clever enough. There's nothing that, for those of us that are pastors here, we, we didn't get some secret tunnel, right? Like, there's nothing that we did that caused Christ to give his life for us. That is all him. So when we present this idea of Christianity to people with this sense of arrogance or with this sense of entitlement, listen, I don't want to listen to people like that. You definitely know non-believers aren't going to listen to people like that. So when you claim this idea of being outcast because you're a believer, make sure that it's really because of that and not because your personality grates on people's nerves. Just think, I'm just, it's just a thing to think about. Is that, I had a friend of mine, we talk about, again about this idea of suffering, uh, and he got a speeding ticket for going 80 in a 50. And the speeding ticket was like $350 or something like that. And so he's telling me about it, he says, man, God's really testing me this week. I'm like, I'm like please, please don't ever say that again. I'm like, no, you broke the law and you're suffering the consequences. This isn't, this isn't suffering because you're associated with Jesus. It's suffering because you made a stupid choice. 
That's it. So let's, let's make sure we separate these ideas of suffering because of something we did and suffering things that are out of our control. And that's, kinda, that's the principle that Peter's getting to at this point. Is this idea that the suffering should not come because we did something stupid. Now let's look at verses 16 and 17. Because this is really going to get to the crux of what Peter's talking about here. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And at first glance, verse 17 seems kind of crazy. Judgment? It was like, wait a minute. So what Peter's telling us is that suffering's going to come our way and judgment's going to come our way. Can we please go back to the love, mercy, and grace thing? That, those are, I liked hearing those things, Peter. I'm not so sure about the suffering and the judgment. I don't remember signing up for that when I signed up for my Jesus papers. But Peter's saying, this is not the final judgment. What principle three is that God uses trials to refine our faith. God uses trials to refine our faith. And that is what's happening with these people. And that's what's happening with us. That is a principle that applies to us still today. The trials in our lives, specifically those that are put upon us and not caused by us, are to refine our faith. So when it talks about judgment, it's not referring to the final judgment when you stand before God. This is basically a weeding out process. Is your faith real? Is it genuine? Or are you just playing around and everything's cool as long as your circumstances are good and as soon as those leave, your faith leaves too? We see a lot of people now, even in the church today, who grew up in the church, said, yeah, I, I, I love Jesus. Things are good. And then there came a time in their lives where trials came their way. They said, you know what, God, I don't want nothing to do with you. I know what to do. I can fix this. You're not doing this at the pace I want you to do this at. You're not doing all the things I want you to do. So God, I, I'm, I'm done. And so a lot of those times in that situation, people I've talked to, they'll use words like, oh, I, 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 I used to be a Christian or I've lost my faith. The Bible's response to that is you never had it to begin with. It's not that you used to be a Christian, it's that you never were to begin with. And so we deceive ourselves into thinking because we have church attendance, right, that that makes us Christians. And that's not the case. If our faith has gone that easily, our faith wasn't in God to begin with. It was in our circumstances. God, as long as circumstances are good, I've got faith. I'm good to go. But as soon as something hard comes our way, we give up on that. We give up on God. And I'm not talking about the person who struggles with trusting God. That's, that's a totally different thing. You can still have that faith and be struggling with that. What I'm referring to is the people who are saying, you know what, God, I don't want nothing to do with you now. It's not that they lost their faith. It's that their true faith was never there to begin with. And so we deceive ourselves and we hurt our ministry when we tell people that there is this idea that, oh, well, you know, I remember when they were seven or eight years old. You know, they said these prayers and became a Christian, so everything's fine now. Let's not kid ourselves about that. That's not saving faith. And I know that's hard to hear, because I know a lot of people like that. And they wrongly believe that they are still living for the gospel, but nothing could be further from the truth. And God wants to refine us, but in order for that to happen, we have to trust him. 
We have to trust like, God, there's chaos all around me, but I'm trusting you. God, I don't know what's happening. I don't know where things are going to be like. I don't know what the future's like. I don't know what's wrong with my kids. I don't know what's wrong with my spouse. There's just chaos everywhere. In verse 19, Peter says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Principle four, trust God and continue to do good. Trust God when things are hard, when there are trials, when there is suffering. Trust God and continue to do good. Don't give up on things just because things are hard for you. Trust in God. Sometimes, and this is what this verse is telling us because it says, according to God, those who suffer according to God's will. Sometimes God intentionally sends trials in your life. This first, this, this, here's this idea in Scripture that God is sovereign, meaning he's over everything. So if that is true, then one of two things is possible when there's a trial in your life. One, he has allowed it to happen, or two, he has caused it to happen. Now, I'm not going to say for you which one you're in right now because I, I'm not God. But this idea that, that God has nothing to do with that and isn't aware of what's going on in our lives does not in line with the Bible. So he either allowed it or he sent it to you intentionally to test your faith. Part of this refining process. And so when suffering strikes, our first response should be like Peter talks about in verse 19. Commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. Now we have three possibilities when we're faced with trials and suffering. Three, three responses that we give when we're faced with trials and suffering. The first one, do you give up? Do you decide to quit trust God, quit trusting God? You know what, God, I, I'm going to do this on my own. I don't think that you know what you're doing. I can't trust you. A lot of times it's, there are things we want. God's not doing things the way we want or the speed at which we want. Or maybe he's having us do something completely different and we don't like that. God, I don't want things to be hard, so I'm, I'm done. Maybe if I just quit, everything will be okay. Again, that's that same idea that faith is in good circumstances. It's not in God. Maybe that's where you are today. There's something going on, and you're having to decide, are you going to fully commit to God, or are you going to do your own thing? A second option is maybe you're in a place where you think that your faith is solid and God's bringing something your way or allowing you to go through something to show you that maybe it's not as solid as you thought it was. And this is, this is where I was a few years ago. And so this, this time in my life is, is, is hard to talk about um, because of the suffering and the pain that went with it. But this is where I was, thinking that my faith was strong and solid, and then God showing me what it was really like. <clears throat> uh, some of you guys know my, my brother started a church in downtown San Francisco in 2010. And at that point, my wife and I were living in Houston, Texas, and he asked if we wanted to come help out, you know, kind of come help get the church off the ground. And so that was during the middle of the school year. We were both teachers, and so we're thinking, yeah, you know, by the time the school year is over, we're going to be ready to go. We spent time praying about it. <clears throat> we spent time studying God's word. And we were 100% certain that that's what God was calling us to do. Like, no doubt. So much so <laughs> that we both quit our jobs 
at the end of the year. Side note, don't quit one job until you have a new one. That's just a, that's a free, today's free lesson. So we both quit our jobs. And so the plan was I was going to go first out to San Francisco and live with my brother for about a month and try and find a job because my thinking as a, honestly, up until that point, as a male teacher, it was easy for me to find a job. It just was, especially as an elementary school teacher, it was easy for me to find a job. And so I was thinking the same thing was going to happen. But even before I left, I was staying with my dad in Louisiana, and something just, something just inside me just did not feel right. And I chalked it up to just the stress of having to leave, you know, and going across the country and not having, you know, a job already taken care of. And then it begins to hit me, like, maybe I've made a huge mistake. I was so sure that God was in this. Like, why, why did I quit my job? What, what if I don't get a job out there? What if everything goes wrong? As, as a follower of Christ, as a husband, it is my responsibility to take care and provide for my family. That's my God-given responsibility. And so as I'm flying to San Francisco, this start, it starts to hit me. Like, this could be horrible. I, I did not think this through. Each day keeps getting worse, and I kind of kept, like, the weight of everything, like, finally hit me. And things keep crashing down on me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I've got to get this right. I've got to get this right. So when I get there, it takes a while. It takes about a week before I start to get a couple of interviews. And during that time, like, the depression that I was under really kicks in. I, I'm not eating. I'm sleeping about two hours a night. Everything's just becoming, just becoming numb. Like life at this point was starting to feel empty for me. I kept having a few more inter interviews, but never once got a position. And with each rejection, like, the weight comes crashing down harder and harder. And so at this time, as this kind of comes to an end, we decide that we're going to have to head back to Houston. Lindsay was able to get her job back. When we got back to Houston, nothing had changed for me because I, I couldn't get my job back, so I still felt worthless. I still felt I, I can't provide for my family. During this time, I was not actively contemplating suicide, but I, I didn't care if I lived or died. I, di I didn't care. In fact, there were a lot of nights I thought, God, it'd be better if you just take me. That way I don't have to keep putting my wife through this pain. I don't have to keep worrying about these things. And it almost destroyed our marriage. Uh, luckily, Lindsay's an amazing wife, and instead of leaving, decided to keep praying for me, talking to my family, the worst thing about this time was, this was my first time as a Christian, I felt disconnected from God. I became a Christian when I was 19, and there was never a time up until then that I did not feel God's Spirit active in my life. But for those, I guess probably about four months, I, I didn't feel God anywhere, in anything. All right? And I, 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 looking back on that now, I know that God was there, but in that moment, I didn't feel that. That is a... a that is a deep emotional pain that I would never wish on anyone. Through this process, like I said, Lindsay stayed by my side. She prayed for me, kept in touch with my family. And then one day, my dad calls. 
And he says, Lee, he says, if, if you don't go seek professional help tomorrow, I'm going to make the drive from Louisiana to Houston, and I'm going to take you somewhere myself. And because I'm scared of my dad, I, I did that. And so, just as, as a side note, if you, are, if you are ever in a place where you're struggling with depression or anything like that, go seek help. Don't, don't do that on your own. That, that's, not, that's never God's intention in the Scripture for you to do everything on your own. That's, every, everything that's talked about throughout the Bible is that we need to admit that we need help. If you're in that moment, do that. And so, for me, it, it took that push from my dad to go get that help. And so the next day, I, I called a counselor and set up a meeting, started meeting with them for a while. And so eventually, I got a job, and you know, things kind of start to settle down, and I can start to feel like the, the fuzziness of my brain is, is finally going away. And I remember sitting down, just for a time of prayer. And asking God why he allowed those things to happen. said, God, I was, I was praying, I was studying my Bible every night. For an, for an hour and a half, I would sit and study my Bible and take notes and spend time in prayer. I was tithing. I was sharing my faith with people. God, why does this, I'm doing everything. And then, then God kind of pierced my heart because he said, Lee, you aren't doing those things because you wanted me. You did them because you wanted my stuff. And the worst part was that that's, that was true. I didn't spend all those hours studying God's word and spending time in prayer because I wanted to draw closer to God. I thought, God, if I do these things, then you're going to let me go to San Francisco like I want to. I feel that you're putting this on my heart, so if I do these things for you, you're going to give me the thing that I want. And so the most loving thing that God could do to me during that time was to not give me what I wanted. There was, it, it was a devastating time in my life and in Lindsay's life and an experience that changed us forever. And I know that God refined my faith during that time, but you could not pay me enough to go through that again. I know that on the back end that God used it for good because he's God. But I would never go through that again. Suffering is not meant to be enjoyable, but God used it to refine my faith during that time. He used that time to show me, Lee, faith is not about the things you want. It's about recognizing who I am and being with God because of who he is and because of what he has done for us. The third type of response to suffering and trials, and this is the kind that we rarely see even among Christians, is this idea that, man, I'm going through this right now, but I can't wait to see how God is glorified. There's, a, there's a, a man in our church who's going through some tough things health-wise right now, and I love getting to speak to him. Because every time he brings it up, he says, yeah, I got to talk to some of the doctors about Jesus today. I got to talk to some of the nurses about my faith. It's never, please feel sorry for me. It's, man, it's, it's, this is an opportunity for God to be glorified in everything that I say and do during this time. What's it going to take for us to get to that point? If you think earlier about the story I shared about Horatio Spafford and the question I asked, can we ever get to that level of faith where we say, no matter what, it is well with my soul? 
The only way that happens is by looking to the cross. Only by seeing what Christ has done for us, his death and his resurrection to bring us back to him, to know that he suffered greater than anything we will ever go through. And he did that out of his love for me and for you. As we talked about in verse 19, entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. The reason I believe that Peter uses the word creator in that verse is to make us aware that God created us. And if he can create us, then he is the one who can sustain us through these times. The only way to do this is to look through the cross. So the question I want to leave you with is, in trials, in pain and suffering, are you able to say, it is well with my soul? If that's something you want to talk about, uh, the pastors and I would love to sit and talk with you about that afterwards. We are not meant to do this by ourselves. We are meant to come to Christ for this. We're now going to enter into a time of communion. And I know sometimes <clears throat> when we do communion, we just kind of like rush forward and, and just take communion and then to be done with it. But here's what I want you to do before that moment. I want you to take time and reflect on trials in your life. And those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, I guarantee you, you can find trials in your past where you said, you know what, that was hard, but man, God has done something through that. So when we come to the table this morning to take the body and the blood of Christ, it's to remind us of what he has done for us. It's to remind us that he is in the midst. He has suffered so that he could be in the midst of our trials. He is close to the brokenhearted. Can we say it is well with my soul? Let's pray.